deepfakes is a broad term for automatically synthesized fake content, whether that's an image of a person who never existed, whether it's a video of somebody doing or saying something they never did. And you can see why that type of technology is very powerful because now we have in some ways the perfect storm. We have the ability to automatically create fake content, images, audio, and video. We have the ability to distribute that content through social media easily and rapidly and cheaply. And we have a very willing public willing to consume that material and believe the worst in the people that they don't like or they don't agree with. And that's the perfect misinformation and disinformation storm. I'm Quinta Jurassic, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, July 23rd, 2020. This week on our Arbiters of Truth series on disinformation, Evelyn Dweck and I spoke with Hani Farid, professor at the University of California, Berkeley, with a joint appointment in electrical engineering and computer science in the School of Information. His work focuses on analyzing and identifying altered photo and video, what's known as digital image forensics. Recently, he's done work on deepfakes, realistic synthetic media in which a person's likeness is altered to show them doing or saying something they never did or said. He's also helped develop technology used by platforms to identify and remove material related to child sexual abuse. So how dangerous are deepfakes really? How much of that danger is the technology itself? And how much of it has to do with how platforms amplify incendiary content? And should platforms moderate disinformation and misinformation in the same aggressive way they take down sexually abusive material? It's the Lawfare Podcast, July 23rd. Hani Farid on deep fakes, doctored photos, and disinformation. So, Hani, thank you so much for joining us. You've been described by some as the father of digital image forensics. So just to start off, um, can you explain to our listeners what are digital image forensics? Yeah. So first of all, I'm just glad it's not grandfather yet, although I dread the day when it becomes a grandfather. You know, so here's, here's a, it's been a fascinating 20 years for me. About 20 years ago in the late 90s, early 2000, um, you could see the trend in digital. You could see film starting to fade and digital cameras starting to rise. You could see things like Photoshop starting to take off. And of course, the internet was uh, in its early days. And I started thinking about, well, what happens when we can manipulate reality by manipulating images? And, you know, nobody had been thinking about that problem because it just didn't exist. It just wasn't really a, a major issue. Of course, people historically manipulated images, but it wasn't the type of problem that we see today. And so the field of image forensics, which um, I and really talented students in my group over many years now uh, pioneered, is focused on analyzing images and video and audio to determine if they have been manipulated or altered from the time of recording. So it's really just, do we trust this photo to be a definitive recording of what actually happened? Awesome. So I think the link between that and dis and misinformation is probably pretty apparent in a in a narrow sense. I mean, fake images are misinformation at, at the least, and they are often disinformation. But your public-facing work hasn't just focused on the technical aspects of fake images. You've also looked at the broader ecosystem of misinformation as well. So how did you get interested in that broader picture? Yeah, I, you know, one of the great things about being an academic is you can really broaden your worldview and think about these problems from many different angles. And I think I got interested in the policy and regulatory aspect uh, and not just the technological aspect when I realized that although technology sort of got us into this trouble, technology in and of itself will not get us out of trouble. We have to think about these issues of mis- and disinformation holistically. We have to, of course, think about technological solutions, but we also have to hold corporations like Facebook and like YouTube and like Twitter and like TikTok responsible for how their platforms are being misused. We have to help educate our leaders, our legislators on how to think about regulating in this space in a sensible, thoughtful way. Uh, And of course, we have to help educate the public. 
And you know, one of the great things about being an academic is you can play in all of those areas as long as you talk to really smart people about the things that you don't know about. And so over the years, I've gotten interested in the policy issues and the regulatory issues because I think that they have to be part of a broader solution. So let's talk then about one, I think, maybe the the most alarming sounding example of sort of fake images as mis and disinformation, which is uh, deep fakes, uh, which have gotten yeah. a lot of press <laughs> recently. So you, you co-authored a piece for Lawfare recently with Bobby Chesney and Danielle Zittrin titled All's Clear for Deep Fakes, Think Again, um, where you were sort of pushing back on this idea that we can all relax about whether deepfakes are going to be a kind of existential threat. So to start off, can you just remind our listeners like what deepfakes are? And I wonder if it would be useful also to kind of situate them in the the sort of the progress of technology you've seen over the the period of time you've been working on digital image forensics. Good, good. Yeah, so let let me define deepfakes first. And, And I agree it's a very scary sounding name, which is probably why it's gotten so much attention. But there is something really interesting happening in the this new technology. So historically, if you wanted to create pre-digital, if you wanted to manipulate images, you were in a dark room. Um, you were physically altering a negative and then re-exposing it. And that required a lot of skill and equipment. And there was really a relatively small number of people who can do this. Fast forward to the digital age, we democratized access to the recording. We now have digital devices. We democratized access to technology to manipulate that. And the problem became more severe because more and more people could manipulate digital content. Fast forward another decade, we now have the internet. We have social media. We've democratized access to the ability to publish, to transmit that fake imagery to the world instantaneously. Fast forward another five years, advances in AI, artificial intelligence, and machine learning have now made it so that you need less and less skill to create fake content, whether it's an image, an audio, or a video. And the way it works is that the the underlying artificial intelligence algorithms do the hard work of sitting in front of a computer, replacing one person's face with another, or putting words into somebody's mouth, something that used to require some amount of skill, is now being automated. It's the classic story of automation. And again, it's all about democratization of access to technology. So what used to be in the hands of a few is now in the hands of many. And so deepfakes is a broad term for automatically synthesized fake content, whether that's an image of a person who never existed, whether that's an audio of somebody saying something that they never said, whether it's a video of somebody doing or saying something they never did. And you can see why that type of technology is very powerful, because now we have in some ways the perfect storm. We have the ability to automatically create fake content, images, audio, and video. We have the ability to distribute that content through social media easily and rapidly and cheaply. And we have a very willing public willing to consume that material and believe the worst in the people that they don't like or they don't agree with. And that's the perfect misinformation and disinformation storm. And along the way, our regulators have been slow to respond. Our corporate overlords have been way too slow in coming to grips with how their platforms are being weaponized. And that's why we are living through the mess we are living in now. And the last thing I'll do, and and I'll refer back to this great term that uh, Bobby Chesney and Danielle Citron uh, coined, which is the liar's dividend. That in some ways, the greater risk here, and we talk about this in the Lawfare article, is not just that we can create manipulated media. It's that uh, the liar has now an excuse to dismiss any piece of visual imagery as fake if it doesn't, if it's inconvenient to them. So just to give you a sense of this, 2015, then candidate Trump got himself in trouble for saying some pretty awful things about what he does to women. And at that time, just four years ago, he didn't apologize. He just said, you know, it's nothing. Don't worry about it. And we moved on. Today, does anybody think he wouldn't say it's fake news? I mean, on a daily basis, this president talks about dismissing facts because they are inconvenient to him. And that liar's dividend is very powerful. And we are seeing it unfold on the global stage where politicians are very quick to dismiss 
visual evidence because it simply doesn't conform to their worldview or it's inconvenient. And that is, you know, a really big threat, which is what uh, Danielle and Bobby and I wrote about in that Lawfare article. Yeah. So talk about that a little more, because I think that part of what you were getting at in that article is that when deep fake sort of first came onto the scene, I think there was a an idea that was very prominent that this was going to, you know, immediately change everything, right? That there would be, you know, in the worst case scenario, like a deep fake of President sure. Trump announcing war on North Korea, you know, sparking a nuclear war. Just, you know, sure. imagine, imagine as wild as you want to get. And yeah. That obviously hasn't happened, but your piece was all about how there still are dangers and sort of the technology that detects yeah. deepfakes has not put us in the clear. So yeah. Yeah. talk a little bit more about that. Like, why haven't Good. we ended up in that circumstance and why yeah. aren't we in the clear? Yeah. So in addition to the liar's dividend, which we've already talked about, the other actual consequence of deepfakes that is happening is in the form of non-consensual pornography, which is primarily affecting women. Um, so that is people take, whether it's a performer, a human rights worker, an investigative journalist, somebody who's attracted un unwanted attention, and they splice their, in, their likeness into sexually explicit content and distribute that um, online. And you can see why that is a phenomenally powerful weaponization in terms of hurting an individual. That is by far the dominant form of deepfakes that we are seeing today. Now, where are we worried about deepfakes? So of course we're worried about a political leader, somebody creating a fake video of a political leader saying, I've launched nuclear weapons. Or 48 hours, 24 hours before an election, a fake video makes its way around the internet and we swing an election or somebody can commit massive fraud by creating a video of Mark Zuckerberg saying Facebook's profits are down 10%. And before anybody figures out that it's fake, you've moved the market billions of dollars. So here's the thing. All those scenarios that I described, I don't think that they're likely, but the fact that they're not impossible should scare us. And I reject those that say, well, it hasn't happened, so let's all sleep well at night and not worry about it. The nature of risk is you don't wait until it happens and then try to come back and fix it because some of the things that I described are not fixable. So I think that for too long, we in the technology sector have followed this idiotic Facebook motto of move fast and break things, that we develop technology because we can and not necessarily because we should. We deploy it and then we sit back and, and ask, well, let's see what happens next. And we have to start being more sensible and thoughtful about this, because the fact is, is that every technology, while they can lead to wonderful, creative, inspiring things, have a dark side. And we are simply asking for us to think about that, to think about how do you put safeguards in place, not after you have to, but before you have to. And I think most people recognize that there's a threat here. And I don't see why we would not want to respond to that, either in terms of policy, regulation, or technology, as opposed to simply waiting for the nightmare situation, even if it is an unlikely nightmare situation. Can you talk to us a little bit more about the tech involved and the timelines on that? So, you know, how long would you say it is until really highly believable deepfakes, yeah. uh, the technology for that is completely democratized, like anyone could go to a website yeah. and, and find it? And then also, how much faith can we have in technology as a solution to detecting deepfakes? And how much mm -hmm. further behind, you know, the nightmare yeah. scenario is that? Sure, sure. Well, so a couple of things. So today, there is very good deep fake technology to create images of people who don't exist. So go ahead and navigate to the website called thispersondoesnotexist.com, one word. And you will be presented with an image that has been completely synthesized by a computer algorithm, and in particular, a generative adversarial network. It's a form of a machine learning software. And that technology is phenomenal. It's there. It's fully democratized because I can just go to that website and I can grab an image of a person that doesn't exist and use that to create a fake profile as a teenager did to create a, a fake profile of a candidate running for Congress and got that person verified by Twitter and by the election board, by the way. So that technology is here. Cat's out of the bag. Now, in terms of the more sophisticated, in some ways, technology for creating full-blown video of me or you or the president of the United States saying something they, they never said, 
or a more sophisticated technology for creating full-blown five-minute videos of somebody doing and saying things they never they never did. It's developing very rapidly. So what we have seen over the last two years is a phenomenal improvement in that technology, number one. Number two is that technology is readily available on things like GitHub, where you can download the code and run them on your computer. That still requires a little bit of skill and patience and and know-how. But we are now very slowly but surely seeing apps and web pages pop up that will do it for you. And of course, that's that's the, the ultimate democratization. Um, which is that you download an app or you go to a website and you swap one person's face for another. And look, I don't like to predict the future because, first of all, that's really hard. We're almost always wrong. It's particularly hard in the technology sector. But we know it's coming, um, whether it's six months, 12 months, 18 months, or 24 months. We know it's coming. It, it, this, is, this is the nature of technology, right? Computers get faster. They get cheaper. They get better. And technology rolls forward. So this is coming in the coming years, um, if not months. And I think we have to think about it. We have to think about it from a policy perspective, a regulatory perspective, an education perspective, and a technology perspective. And so now let's get to that question, which is who's going to win this game? Well, I can tell you, and this is, I have to say is a little depressing, is I'm going to lose. And I know this because in any cybersecurity space, playing defense is really hard and playing offense is easier. But what allows me to get up in the morning and go to work is knowing that although I will lose, uh, my goal is not to eliminate the threat of deep fakes. My goal is not to detect every single possible fake piece of content. That, that is unrealistic. My goal is to pull back on the full-blown democratization of the ability of anybody to create fake content and to take it out of the hands of the average person and move it into a, 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 an increasingly smaller and smaller set of highly skilled, highly motivated um, actors. And while that's still a threat, it becomes a more manageable threat. So I think that's the way we have to think about these threats, is not that you eliminate them, but you mitigate them. You, you, you manage them, you make it more difficult, more time consuming, harder to do it, fewer people can do it. And that's something that I think that we, we were probably going to have to live with. What is the time frame of that? It's hard to say. I said the, the good thing about a lot of the press coverage of deep fakes, and, and maybe some of it was more doomsday than the reality, is it has raised awareness. And I think that's good. We should be aware of these threats of our inability to trust the things that we see and hear uh, online, because I think that's a real threat to society and democracy. Yeah. So can I play devil's advocate a little bit on that and and talk about the awareness raising aspect as well? Because we kind of tend to see this throughout history with every new technology. You know, the radio was going to uh, have mm. subliminal messages and and change uh, society and, and TV and video games and, and things like that. Mm. And then as well, I like tying this into your work on fake and manipulated photos. Presumably there was a similar kind of panic when the tools for digital manipulation of still images was developed. And we don't seem to have entered this post-truth dystopia. Mm -hmm. um, although, you know, every natural disaster, there seems to be people who think that there are sharks swimming down highways, but, you know, that's not sort of the end of the world. And sort of this idea that we as a society adjust, we learn about the fact that this yeah. technology exists. And so we're not so easily duped. Is that sort of how you've seen it play out in the in the fake and manipulated still images context? Yeah. And does that give you any hope or confidence in the deep yeah, fake context? Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I didn't actually see it play out that way. In the early days of the digital revolution, nobody was really that concerned about the fact that you can manipulate images. Um, it was not, I don't think it was the same type of response that you saw from deep fakes. And I'll, I'll posit on why I think that is. I think, first of all, deep fakes is a bit of a game changer in terms of the sophistication. When you, when really the average person can create a video of a president of the United States saying something they didn't say, that's very different than where we were 20 years ago, number one. Number two is you can't separate that technology from the reality of social media. If we had the ability 20 years ago with Photoshop to manipulate digital images, I think the reason why people weren't writing articles about the danger of this is because we didn't have the ability to distribute it. And we also didn't have the misinformation apocalypse that we have today, the sort of divisions of society that are so deep and profound and these echo chambers of online uh, social media uh, sites. So I think, you know, the landscape has shifted in a number of different directions, which I think is why people are more concerned. 
The other thing I'll, I'll offer too is, you know, it's hard to separate out whether we got it wrong by raising the alarm bells or we got it right and it did raise awareness and it did provide safeguards. And so it never manifested itself. It's hard to sort of sort those two things out. I like to believe it's the latter, that by raising awareness, people become more educated, they become more savvy. Those trying to create the fake content are maybe put on notice that we're paying attention to this, and maybe that's good. I mean, think about the cybersecurity space with spam and malware and viruses and ransomware. We're constantly telling people, be cautious, be cautious, be cautious, be cautious. And that's good. And that's good to sort of constantly be aware of these things because they are real threats. So I think that, you know, the landscape has shifted a lot over the last 20 years. And I think that's probably why we are more concerned about the nature of deep fakes than we may have been 20 years ago. So I think with, with that in mind, then let, let's dig into this question of sort of how platforms handle mm. these images. So you you recently testified to Congress on this issue and talked about how the platforms have sort of gotten really very good at detecting pornography, sexual images, and removing it, as well as copyrighted materials, because there's, there's a clear business or a legal interest in doing yeah. so. But by contrast, they haven't really prioritized misinformation and disinformation in the same way, and the tools are, are less sophisticated. So mm-hmm. how much of that is, is a tech problem, and how much of that is just sort of the category of content of misinformation and disinformation yeah. is necessarily harder to define? Yeah. Well, I think it's a little bit of both. So first of all, I I don't think defining pornography is that easy. It's the classic line of, you know, I don't know how to define it, but I know it when I see it. But there's been a business incentive for the platforms, the YouTubes and the Facebook to remove it because advertisers don't want their ads running against that material. And so from a very early time, they invested in technology and resources to find and remove that content. They They got good at it. Nobody would argue, I think, that the nature of mis- and disinformation can be ambiguous, but there's lots of mis- and disinformation that is not ambiguous. It's completely clear-cut. The fake video of Speaker Nancy Pelosi purportedly drunk during an interview was clearly fake. The problem with that was not we couldn't detect it or we couldn't determine if it was fake. The problem was Mark Zuckerberg had no problem with it on his platform, and he had no problem running it as if it was real. It wasn't done as satire. It wasn't poking fun at a candidate, which of course we should be allowed to do. It was being sold a bill of goods saying, this is Nancy Pelosi drunk and we should impeach her. And Mark Zuckerberg said, we have no problem with this. So I think that the problem is, is of course, the technology is difficult. But at Facebook, at least, the problem is more fundamental, which is Mark Zuckerberg's line of, I don't want to be the arbiter of truth. And the problem with that line is it is spectacularly naive, and I don't think it is actually naive, I think it's cynical, because what Mark Zuckerberg won't tell you is he may not want to be the arbiter of truth, but he is incredibly comfortable on a daily basis being the arbiter of what is relevant. Everything you see on Facebook is being curated for you through an algorithm, and that algorithm is designed to keep you engaged on the platform, to separate you from your data, and to deliver ads to you so that Facebook can make $70 billion a year. So why is he so uncomfortable being the arbiter of truth, but he's so comfortable manipulating you, showing you things that are designed to keep you on the platform? I'm not buying the story. You can't have it both ways. And what you should understand about social media, and this is it's easy to pick on Facebook, but this is true of all the social media, is that they're manipulating you to maximize engagement. And that means, for example, that on Facebook, that more than half of people who are, have joined private groups that are affiliated with white supremacists got there because Facebook recommended that group to them. This is not a neutral platform. This is not about being an arbiter of truth. You are the drug dealer. You are telling people to go down the rabbit hole of white nationalism or conspiracies or committing terror attacks or denying basic facts of science. So this idea that there's a marketplace of ideas and it is open and free is completely untrue and and neglects the reality of social media is that we are all being manipulated. And if you are manipulating us this way, I would argue you now have a broader responsibility to make sure that your platform is not being used to distribute child sexual abuse material, non-consensual pornography, mis- and disinformation around health, 
issues, around political issues, white nationalism, terrorism. And for the most part, the tech companies have fallen asleep at the wheel. And it's only in the last few years under threats of regulation have they at least started to acknowledge the problem. But I think they've been far too slow in actually addressing them. So can I just maybe draw out something that I think is implicit or ask you if this is implicit in what you're saying, um, which is that maybe we would be a lot less concerned about deep fakes or other kinds of misinformation if the business model was different. So if we didn't think that this kind of material would get amplified so much yeah. if it got released onto a platform, we might not be so concerned about it because it wouldn't have the same kind of reach. Is that kind of what you're saying? That's exactly what I'm saying, Evelyn, is that there, there's many things at play here. So obviously, the risk of deep fakes is, is fundamentally there. But what really makes them scary is that when they go online, they are going to be amplified by the YouTubes, the Twitters, and the Facebooks. Why? Because those platforms profit by viral content. They profit by things that draw people in. And we know that hateful, divisive, sensational, outrageous, conspiratorial content drives engagement. And so these platforms are going to promote them. And that is not a neutral stance. And that is what we're, and by the way, the, the, the half-life of a social media post is measured in hours, not days and not weeks and not months. The vast majority, more than half of uh, views of a social media post happen within a few hours of its posting. It moves fast and it's furious and the viral nature of it is phenomenally dangerous when you are talking about these types of threats. And you know, we all know how the internet works. It's not that easy to correct the record. You could say, well, sure, it gets out there for a few hours, but we'll correct the record. No, that's not the way it works. Studies have shown over and over again that fake information moves faster than than true information, that it's incredibly difficult to correct the record, that there's often a boomerang effect, even if you can actually correct the record. And part of this also is because the nature of social media is that you are being shown material that conforms to your worldview. And so you have confirmation bias and correcting the record for strongly held beliefs is very, very difficult. So one of the reasons why I think your work in this space is so valuable and, and uh, I get so much out of it is because you have both that sort of technological expertise as well as sort of the broader perspective. I come from it from, from like a, a free speech scholar kind of mm, law perspective. Good. And often I feel like, you know, both tech companies and lawmakers kind of arbitrage people's ignorance in this space, which kind mm -hmm. of uh, intersects at, at both of them. So, you know, we, we have this idea that maybe if we could come up with this perfect misinformation rule, um, just let's just humor ourselves and say that we could come up with it. The platforms say, yes, but you don't understand sort of the scale. It's technologically infeasible to operationalize that rule at the kind of scale that we operate at. But then conversely, I think lawmakers sometimes come at it with this thing of like, if if you just sort of nerded harder and developed the tools better, you would be able to enforce these rules. It's just a problem of values and you're not, you're not trying hard enough. My own personal feeling is it's probably a bit of both, but you know, what do you think? How much of this is like a tech problem and they just haven't prioritized developing yeah. the tools enough? And how much of it is just like a pure values problem? I, I think it depends on the platform. Like there's a whole host of different platforms, so, you know, from Reddit to YouTube to Facebook are very different culturally. But I think you're probably right, Evelyn, that it's a combination of two things. Nobody will deny their hard problems, but I'll remind you um, that in the early days of the internet, when copyright infringement was absolutely rampant, right? People were downloading movies and videos all day long. And the tech companies were saying the same thing they're now saying around misinformation is that, look, this is really hard. We can't do anything about it. Um, it's just too big, too complicated. And then what happened? We passed the Digital Millennial Copyright Act. And guess what? Everybody got good at it. And I like to draw the analogy to the car manufacturers. Back in the 60s and 70s, when we were asking the car manufacturers to produce safer cars, seatbelts, airbags, and things that didn't kill us when we, we crashed into things, the manufacturers cried up and down that this was going to destroy manufacturing. And it didn't, right? It, what it does is it temporarily, for a short term, hurts your profits, but you figure it out. I mean, these are some of the most phenomenally large, wealthy, innovative companies in the world. And the, the amount of whining they do about putting in the bare minimum protections is just pathetic. I mean, it's pathetic. We can do better. Will it be perfect? Of course not. Can it be a lot better than it is now? Absolutely. And that is a values issue. 
And you know, one of the the real challenges in this space now is the sheer scale and dominance of Facebook and Google and Twitter and YouTube means that there's very little room for competitors. So when somebody comes along with a better product and something that is safer and people want it, it's very difficult for them to compete because these companies can come in and absolutely crush them or absorb them. And so part of the danger here with these with these huge companies is there's just not a lot of oxygen in the room for better business models, better policies. And I think that that's something that I'm, I'm hopeful that our legislators will also be looking at. And I think actually Mark Zuckerberg is testifying this week or next week about exactly these issues. And maybe it is time to say, look, you've got to make room for, for better business models here because this is not working for us. And I think most people agree that we've gone off the rails, right? That that Facebook and Twitter and YouTube have, there, there are still some, obviously some good things here, but there's a lot of bad things. And now we've just got to figure out how to rein that in. And I just reject those that say, this is going to destroy the internet. This is going to destroy free speech. This is impossible. This will crush innovation. I think it's just, they're making $70 billion a year and they don't want to lose that. And I'm sorry, but you have a broader responsibility to individual societies and democracies. And it's time that you step up and do better. So with with all that in mind, I think it, it would be useful to sort of dive into an example of content moderation that yeah. is working at scale or or mostly working, which involves a platform's removal of pornographic material and child sexual abuse material, which platforms mm-hmm. often abbreviate as CSAM. Um, so your, I think, earliest engagement or some of your earliest engagement with the platforms around content moderation involved the yeah. development of photo DNA, which is used to detect and remove CSAM. So just to start yeah. off, can you describe your role in that and how sure. photo DNA works? Sure. Uh, so in, uh, I think it was 2008, I was contacted by Microsoft and asked to come to Washington to talk with them and the then giants of the technology sector about why five years into an effort to reduce the spread of some of the most horrific, gut-wrenching, heartbreaking child sexual abuse material, CSAM, um, they were unable to do it. So in 2003, there was a call to the tech companies, you've got to do something about this. We are seeing an explosion of child sexual abuse material, according to the National Center for Missing and Exploded Children. This is unambiguously awful, illegal material. We got to get it off. Five years on, the tech companies are nowhere. And back to Evelyn's question about, was this a technology problem or just a lack of will? It was 100% a lack of will. They couldn't even get their heads around coming to grips with material of 12-year-olds and 8-year-olds and 4-year-olds being sexually abused and that content being distributed on the internet, which makes me not very hopeful that they're going to get their heads around these more nuanced and subtle issues. So in 08, I went to Washington to talk to the folks at Microsoft and the other tech companies. And what came out of that meeting was that, in my opinion, they were just thinking about this problem all wrong. They were thinking about the problem as, how do we detect any piece of child sexual abuse material? And that was a hard problem back in 2008. It's a hard problem today, particularly because when you make mistakes, there are consequences to that. And when you have billions of uploads a day, you can't have a 99% detection accuracy. That's a one in 100 errors. That's literally millions of mistakes a day. And so the idea we came up with is that we know, and they knew at the time too, that the same pieces of material keep being distributed around the internet month after month, year after year, decade after decade. The National Center for Missing and Exploded Children today is home to some 80 million pieces of known CSAM. And I just said the very simple insight is, well, okay, if I can't solve this big, huge problem of finding all of it, why don't I just find the stuff that I have found before? And by the way, the companies had solutions to this because that's how they were finding copyright infringement, is that they fingerprint digital content, and then they just look for that fingerprint. And so what PhotoDNA did was we reached into every piece of image in the National Center's uh, database. We extract a, a distinct digital signature that is stable over the lifetime of that image. So if the image is modified a little bit, the signature stays the same. And then every time an image is upload, you can find and remove and report that content. And by the way, that's how we find spam. It's how we find malware. It's it's how we find viruses. Those pieces of content have signatures associated with them. 
And that's how we find them. And so this mechanism existed. The companies knew this. They were just dragging their feet for five years. They couldn't get their heads around how horrible this, this material was. And so we developed it in 08. Uh, Microsoft released it in 09. Facebook in 2010. And then between 2010 and, and really 2020, this year, you know, companies have sort of brought it in in varying degrees of aggressiveness. And now it's used more or less worldwide. Uh, last year, the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children received some 20 million reports of child sexual abuse, and I think 99% of those came from photo DNA. So it was effective at, at, at reducing, not eliminating, the spread and redistribution. And I think what's important with this technology to understand is that th this was not, when we designed it, it was really not designed as a law enforcement tool. It was designed as a victim's tool. Because when you talk to these young women, primarily women who are victims of CSAM, and I've talked to them, and if you do, I'm telling you, you will not be able to sleep at night for, for months because their stories are just truly gut-wrenching. These young, young, pre-teens, eight-year-olds, four-year-olds, two-year-olds, and, and more and more now pre-verbal, what they will tell you is that their abuse was one of the worst days of their life. But for many of them, what is even worse is knowing that that same piece of content, that image of their sexual abuse, continues to distribute around the world every day, day in and day out, and that the removal of that content is a huge relief for them or the ability to at least reduce the spread of this material. And that's what we developed the technology to do. The law enforcement was a side effect of that. When you found particularly bad people, you could, you could pursue it from a law enforcement perspective, but this was always about protecting the victims and trying to help them deal with the consequence of knowing that, that material continually distributes online. So thank you. That's, a, I think, a really useful introduction. I mean, one of the things that's really struck me about the use of photo DNA is that, as you say, it's incredibly effective. And yet I've been interested sort of watching the very critical discussion of Facebook's approach to content moderation in other spaces mm. about how yeah. public understanding of sort of Facebook's approach to uh, hateful speech, other kinds of harmful speech, that sort of frustration uh, sometimes seems to to bleed into people's understanding of how Facebook approaches mm -hmm. CSAM and other materials. So for example, there is a, a pilot program Facebook launched, I think in 2018, where basically <laughs> people who are worried that intimate images of themselves yeah. might be shared by, you know, ex-boyfriends um, could share those images with Facebook. So those images could be hashed in order yeah. to prevent them from being shared. And yeah. which, you know, if, if you say it in this context, it's actually, you know, it's a decent idea. I remember mm -hmm. it got so much mockery, um, even yes. from, you know, journalists who cover Facebook, because everyone was saying, oh, you're going to, you know, you're going to trust Mark Zuckerberg with this. Yeah. So I guess my, my question to you is sort of, why why do you think that gap in trust is there and then yeah. do you think that do you think that gap is does it have any effect on the platform's ability to moderate CSAM effectively first of all i'm i'm really glad you raised this cuz it was such an interesting example of i think it was largely well intentioned but it was spectacularly poorly thought out so this program was rolled out post-Cambridge Analytica at a time when nobody trusted Facebook, nobody trusted Mark Zuckerberg. And they're like, send us your most intimate, embarrassing images and videos, and we're on the case. Who in their right mind would do that? But here's what was really frustrating to me about that, it, although it was well-intentioned, is that there was a better way to do this. This is, again, one of these things where they just didn't invest the proper thinking and time and effort and technology. So this hashing technology, the signature that I described to you with photo DNA, can be done in the encrypted domain. So that is what I can do is I can encrypt my image or video in a way that you cannot read, but you can still extract the signature from it. And so what Facebook could have said is, look, we recognize that sending us intimate images and videos is not comfortable to you. So here's what we can do, though. We can encrypt it. And then we will not be able to decrypt it. There's still a little bit of trust there, by the way. And then, but we'll still be able to extract the digital signature from that. It's so-called homomorphic or partially homomorphic encryption. It's a beautiful technology. We had talked about it before. And they could have done something like that. Or they could have said, we will give you the tool to, to pull the signature. And then you just send us the signature. And then you don't have to send us the content. It could have been done in a more thoughtful way. And it just wasn't. 
But I think this is a great example, too, of that. I don't think Facebook really has thought through this very carefully, is that when everybody hates you, when nobody trusts you, it's going to be hard to do the right thing. Because even when it looks like the right thing, as in this case, there still has to be a level of trust when you're implementing policy and nobody trusts them right now. And so they are in a, they're in a bind, I will admit it, but it's a bind of their own making. So it's hard to be overly sympathetic to them. Okay, so I'm going to try and bring us back around from this conversation to the disinformation and misinformation conversation. And it's through this hashing technology that you were so influential in developing in the CSAM context, we're sort of starting to see get deployed in more and more spaces. Um, Notably, it's used uh, in the terrorist and extremist content Mm -hmm. um, space now with the GIFCT database. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And then we're sort of seeing the success of the success in in quotation marks of the CSAM and terrorist material models being invoked and asking these platforms to use it more and more in other spaces too, like, for example, deep fakes and misinformation, disinformation more broadly. Mm -hmm. And I think the concern is that as we keep going down that chain with each new kind of content, we're getting further and further away from sort of a very narrowly confined and Mm -hmm. more objectively definable category of content that is harmful in absolutely every context and never legitimate. Uh, And as sort of as we go out and out, you know, it gets more and more ambiguous and gray. And I mean, we're barely at the start of the conversation of what kind of good uses of deep fakes can we sure. tolerate and what kind of bad uses, et cetera, et cetera. Sure. Um, and I've been struck by some of your writing on this that you've said, you know, it's important to understand that any technology that we can develop can be developed and deployed, can be misused, uh, and sure. that the underlying technology is agnostic to, to what it searches for and removes. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. what what do you think about this idea of the expansion of that underlying model to further uh, areas of content? Yeah. So first of all, I, I, I'm glad you asked this because this is a really important question. It's something we worried about. Um, we worried when we developed photo DNA was that was this going to be misused by a repressive or totalitarian government to remove images of things they don't like? Um, and so a couple of things. So one is when we developed and deployed photo DNA, it was licensed to participating companies to do one thing and one thing only, which is child sexual abuse material. We would not allow them to do it for anything else. So the technology that's being used by GIFCT for the counterterrorism is a different technology. That's a that's a, a, a small point, but I, I just wanted to emphasize that this is something we did worry about. Now, in the in the child sexual abuse space, it, I agree with you that it is distinct, but I will I will tell you that in the early days of developing this technology, what we heard from the companies is, well, how do you really define child pornography? How do you know the person is underage? How do you define sexually explicit? And so they played the ambiguity game the same way you see people playing the ambiguity game with terrorism and misinformation. So the child sexual abuse was not, the companies will have you believe now that they were all over this, but they weren't. They tried to sort of play that game. And there is ambiguous content. And so what Nick Mick did, what the National Center did, is it said, we are going to hash and remove the worst of the worst. This is content where the child is prepubescent. There is no issue of age verification. And there is an explicit sexual act. So they're not just standing in a bathtub without their clothes on. And so there was no ambiguity because there is content that is ambiguous. Okay. Now, for the child sexual abuse space, I think we should just trust NICMIC. We should trust that these organizations know what they're doing and they're doing the right thing. In all other spaces, it is, I will agree, it is more complicated. But here's what you need then. You need transparency. So one of the great things about this hashing technology is that we, we, it's very surgical. Tell me the piece of content you want to remove whether it's misinformation or disinformation or a conspiracy or terror-related or whatever it is, let's put it out there. Tell us what it is. So when we started deploying this technology in the counterterrorism space, we said, you should not do this behind closed doors. There should be open debate about what the content is. Anybody should be able to know what it is. We should be able to vigorously debate it. And once we decide either this is illegal, this is dangerous, it violates terms of service, then it should be flagged, it should be put in the database, and and the debate is over. You do that once, difficult conversations, but then there's there's a transparency in the process. I like that. I like that process. 
But I absolutely believe exactly, Evelyn, for the reasons you said, that you have to have transparency in this process when the gray area gets bigger. But I'll also point out that even in the terrorism space, there's a lot of stuff that is not ambiguous. The videos of people saying, go out and kill somebody, the videos of beheadings, uh, the videos uh, that glorify violence. These are clear violations of the terms of service of the companies. There is lots of content out there that is unambiguous. And what the companies will have you do is focus on the ambiguous content because that makes it easy for them not to act. I acknowledge that there is ambiguous content, but why am I worried about that when there is the church Christ video, the horrific violence? We all agree that should be taken down. So let's focus on the things we can agree on. Let's be transparent about it. Let's have consistent rules. And then we'll worry about the gray area when we have to worry about it. We should always worry about the slippery slope. But I think if we enter a mindset where we say, well, we can't do anything because if we take off child sexual abuse material, we're eventually going to take off kitten videos. We're never going to get anything done. But having said that, we should always be very careful when we do content moderation. I think there should be transparency. There should be clear-cut rules. They should be consistently applied. And I think we can do that and enforce rules without running the risk of taking off all the kitty videos from the internet. I don't know why I focused on kitten videos. I must like those. That's what I'm worried about. <laughs> Everyone likes kitten videos on the internet. That's the only I mean, good that's... thing on the internet. It's the only exactly. good thing on the internet. <laughs> we should just reduce it down to that and all of these problems go away. Um, Sign me up. <laughs> I mean, I couldn't agree more. Nothing drives me crazier than people using slippery slope arguments to justify complete inaction. Um, there's so much that we can do that to focus on the the borderline cases uh, and sort of get paralyzed by them um, is is completely inadequate. I want to ask you a little bit more about transparency and you know mm. what that might look like to be effective because this is something where like I really feel acutely my technological ignorance um, mm. as we go further away and we start sort of seeing calls for platforms to share the technology that they use to. To identify, you know, hate speech, or mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. also, you know, we've set, sort of seen calls about misinformation in the context of the pandemic in images and things like that, and sort of sharing that amongst smaller platforms that have absolutely no hope of developing this kind of technology themselves. They just don't have the data or the resources. Sure. Um, what kind of transparency and oversight would yeah. make you comfortable about yeah. that kind of sharing? Good. So first of all, I don't think you have to have transparency in the technology that you use. That's not what I meant by transparency. By transparency, I meant what are the rules? um, What is the content that you're eliminating? How much of it are you eliminating? And sort of rules in terms of reporting publicly, what is it that you are, are banning? Now, what's nice about the space, once you get outside of the, I don't know, it's not nice, but convenient for the transparency reporting, when you get outside of child sexual abuse, is that the content is not inherently illegal, right? We can't share, even for the purposes of transparency or reporting, uh, child sexual abuse material. It's illegal. It is radioactive. So that's why you have organizations like the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. But in the other spaces... You can have a website where you you tell people what you're taking down, and that's what I think should be transparent, is that when things go into this uh, database of digital signatures of hashes, we should know what it is. And that should be a combination of free speech groups. It should be a combination of NGOs. It should be experts in counterterrorism. It should be experts in civil liberties. It should be technology experts that debate these issues, hashes them out, and comes to a consensus. And that's the the type of transparency that I'd like to see. Now, for small companies, I should mention that when we developed PhotoDNA with Microsoft, it was given away for free. Whether you are a multi-billion dollar company or you had 20 users, you get to use that technology for free. I would like to see the companies around content moderation invest, particularly the wealthy companies, in technology that they are willing to share with the smaller startups, because I think that's just the right thing to do. And then have a common technology that's shared. You know, I don't think that that should be fully transparent. So, for example, the details of photo DNA, we do not share publicly because there's a vulnerability when you do that. So, obviously, the companies that use this technology know how it works and know the details of it. But you probably found in the, in the writings of photo DNA, there is no technical description of it anywhere um, in detail. Because once you release that information, you create yourself a, a vulnerability. So if I told you how my spam filter worked, you'd be a better spammer. 
So I think that there can be semi-transparency around the core technologies, but there should be transparency around the content and the decisions we make. So uh, turning to, to pessimism a little bit, um, mm. with all that on the table, what is your biggest concern looking forward? So like, if you had to predict a, a worst case scenario for the election yeah. with all the stuff we've talked about in mind, what's the main source of risk you're concerned about? So around the election, both here and abroad, I would say my main concern is not deep fakes. I think good old fashioned traditional fake news, just fake news stories, fake memes, fake tweets is, is a huge threat to our democracy. Um, we have seen since 2016, despite Zuckerberg's initial responses saying fake news had nothing to do with the election, we know that is untrue. Everything from state-sponsored actors to the campaigns themselves, individuals to organizations that are intent on stifling voter rights, uh, propagating absolutely blatant lies, whether it's through organic posts or through paid advertising, I think is a fundamental threat to our democracy. And I don't think that we have done enough at, at the corporate level, at the technology level, and at the legislative level to secure our elections. We have been shockingly asleep at the wheel knowing that four years ago, we had major problems in the way elections were run in this country. And I worry about the fairness and the openness of our, of our upcoming election. I, I, again, I, I think deep fakes are going to play a part of that, whether it's this year or two years or four years from now. I think you're absolutely going to see the liar's dividend play itself out. We've already been seeing that over the last few years. But I think the fact is that on a daily basis, we are being inundated with fake news, lies, uh, distortions around voter fraud, around the census, around what the Democrats or the Republicans are doing. And I think that is a dangerous landscape for our democracy. And I come back to one more thing, which we talked about earlier, which is it's particularly bad because we're not all consuming the same news. We're all in our own little echo chamber being fueled by Mark Zuckerberg and his lackeys saying, here's this stuff that conforms to your worldview. And so you can see how people get these very distorted views of the world because they are being fed content in a very specific and narrow way. That is not democracy. That is not a fair and open election. That is distorting democracy in the worst possible way. All right. We always end up ending on a pessimistic note. <laughs> yeah, I don't know why you had to do that. that... <laughs> After all the cheerful stuff we discussed. All right, um, honey, thank you so much for joining us. You've been listening to The Arbiters of Truth, the Lawfare Podcast's miniseries on disinformation. You can find past episodes in the Lawfare Podcast feed, and we'll be back for another episode next Thursday. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. Our audio engineer is Zachary Frank, and our producer is Jen Patya Howell. Please rate and review the Lawfare podcast on whatever app you use, and thanks for listening.